I'm Bill Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. The days of the standard American diet filled with meat, dairy, and the occasional overcooked vegetable are waning. Around one-third of Americans are leaving meat off their plates regularly, and a recent survey found that 43 million Americans are choosing meat-free options when dining, and the gross majority, around 86%, do not even identify as vegan or vegetarian. Concerns around health and animal welfare, as well as the growing knowledge about the environmental impact of industrial animal agriculture, are largely responsible for this shift towards plant-based foods. But increasingly, we are seeing that people and their diets don't squarely fit into any one label. This is exactly what motivated Brian Cateman to start the Reducitarian Foundation, which is dedicated to reducing the consumption of meat, eggs, and dairy to foster a healthy, sustainable, and compassionate world. Brian coined the term Reducitarian to define people who are actively eating less meat, whether that means eating smaller portions of meat or replacing it altogether. It's a broad term that highlights the inclusive nature of a joint effort to use our food choices to create change. While not everyone may agree, the reality is the label you wear is much less important than the impact you can have by simply leaving animal products off your plate. In this conversation, Brian and I discuss whether labels that focus on restriction are effective at creating change. He also talks about his journey launching the Reducitarian Foundation and how it led to a book, conference series, and even a forthcoming documentary. Brian has turned the simple idea of eating less meat into his mission. To learn more about how he plans to unite anyone who wants to see the end of factory farming and burst the vegan bubble, listen in. Brian Cateman, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. Ryan, how are things at your end? I've been uh, in touch with you for a while now and um, seen you start off the Reducitarian Foundation and watched it evolve uh, with the summit last year and another one coming up this year. Uh, but I'm excited to catch up and find out all about all the new initiatives you're working on and um, and maybe perhaps we can start with um, giving, giving the listener a bit of a background on what is the Reducitarian Foundation that you started and, and kind of what led you to even do something like that? Yeah, well, life is good on my end. It's been very busy. Uh, I think back to starting the Reducitarian Foundation in 2014, and I'm very happy with how much we've grown. In terms of starting the Reducitarian Foundation, it's really a personal story for me. Uh, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. And as you know, of someone who lives here, Staten Island is not known to be the most progressive of places in terms of New York City. Um, I grew up on a very typical standard American diet, very rarely had fruits or vegetables or whole grains or any kind of plant-based foods. Um, and, you know, for me, the one part I loved about Staten Island was that there was a lot of nature, there was a lot of environment, green trails. And as a young kid, I kind of fell in love with the natural environment. So when I got to college, I was that kid on campus who was your typical environmentalist. I was telling people that they should recycle, that they should use a refillable you know, cup of water or bottle of water instead of a plastic one. Um, but I had never thought about my food choices in terms of its impact on the planet. And, and one day I was actually flying to present some research on climate change for an undergraduate class. And a friend of mine handed me kind of in jest a book by Peter Singer um, uh, called The Ethics of What We Eat. And I was actually eating a hamburger at the time, so it was a little bit awkward. But it was really in that moment that I learned about all the reasons why factory farming and our overconsumption of animal products is so problematic. And so I decided that I wanted to um, try and be vegan. And mm. for the most part, it went completely fine. But there were like particularly complex social situations, whether it's Thanksgiving or going out to eat with friends, where I found myself kind of falling off the plant-based bandwagon, as they say. And it was in that moment where people kind of were in an uproar. You know, I'd find that I was 99% vegan, but in instances mm -hmm. in where I quote unquote slipped up, um, I would get a lot of flack for it. And I was getting flack from, from not only vegans, but from people who were eating well over 200 pounds uh, of meat every year. And so for me, I realized that there was a, a problem in the way that we kind of view meat consumption as an all or nothing premise. And mm -hmm. I've really been on a mission ever since to combat that idea and to simply encourage people 
to cut back on the amount of animal products that they consume. And I'm happy to talk about the specific programs that we're launching to do that. Yeah. You know, if anyone's heard this podcast, they know uh, I probably mentioned it in a few episodes is that I am um, I'm not a huge fan of labels in general. Because I find that um, it all starts with a, with a, with the right intentions, and then uh, the labels tend to become restrictive, and then it becomes more about um, you know fitting within some certain code of conduct, <laughs> and it kind of becomes <laughs> religious in some sense. So uh, I don't like I don't love rules, so um, I'm generally against labels for that reason. Um, so I totally get what you're you know where you're coming from in terms of um, it sounds like you were trying to do your best. And uh, uh, the only way to do that was to to assign a label to yourself, and and then you found out that you were not necessarily um, living by that code, uh, if you mm-hmm. can call it that, even, uh, which leads you to being uh, criticized from all sides, right? So, uh, how did that kind of then? So, I guess my question for you is, why was the solution to all of that to come up with another label called Reducitarian? <laughs> because uh, you know, if you look at the the, the spectrum of things. You know, you have the vegans, the vegetarians, the flexitarians, the um, uh, meatless Monday people, the vegan before six. Um, why did you think you needed a new term to define um, what it is that you were doing, uh, if if that is why you came up with the term in the first place? Well, I definitely have, uh, share your aversion to, to some labels, but I think that um, labels are very useful and we kind of psychologically na- na- uh, naturally gravitate toward them. So... For me, um, what I wanted to do was be able to easily communicate my dietary choices and attitudes as efficiently as possible. And I was finding myself in situations where people would ask me, you know, are you vegan? And I have to say, no, I'm not vegan, but I'm trying to cut back on the amount of animal products that I consume. And here's more detail about Mm -hmm. my particular dietary choice. And I found that it was a lot of words. Mm -hmm. And I also found myself talking to vegans who were by comparison doing marginally better than me, but there was a sense of insecurity in that. I would have to say that uh, implicitly I'm not as good or as effective as you as a person. And so what I realized is that it wasn't that we needed to do away with all labels. It's just that we needed to do with to do away with restrictive hmm. um, um, specific labels. And I would favor a label that's broad and inclusive. Labels are really useful. We form communities and bonds over them. Psychologically, people who um, adopt labels tend to be more consistent with their actions. And so I think there's a tremendous need um, for a label that is inclusive and broad and keeps people committed. Mm. Um, I do have some concerns about labels that are static, Mm. that are restrictive, um, that put people in silos, emphasize their differences rather than their commonalities and so forth. Yeah, and so was it it thinking that when you say... Uh, a reducitarian, you're implying, you know, obviously that leads to a follow-up question, like, what on earth is that? Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, your first response most likely can be, well, my, 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 uh, I'm aiming to reduce the amount of meat I consume, um, and I kind of try to eat that way. So the conversation, versus if you said I'm a flexitarian or uh, an excusitarian, uh, <laughs> you're not, it's not much of a positive. It seems like you're kind of not, don't know what you're doing. Reducitarian implies a goal. Is that what I'm? You know, and the reason I'm asking these questions because I, I'm fascinated by you know I can say I don't like labels, but at the end of the day, all you know verbal communication words are you know have meaning. They're all labels in some ways. They mm-hmm. signify something, um, an emotion or, or or a state of being or something else. Uh, and I also started my career as a intellectual property lawyer. I did trademark law, so I did a lot of research in the beginning when I was in law school and even in my first job about trademarks and the significance that they take and the you know not just brands but like the cultural significance that some names tend to take and you know when things become generic and when they get adopted so it is i'm fascinated by the idea that you can create a name uh completely invent it and then it becomes a cultural phenomena or it becomes like a meme um so i'm i'm with you on that sense My, i guess i was trying to figure out what was the you know the the thinking behind it, and um, more importantly, have you found that it has um, led to a more positive response from people when you when you came up with the label? Yeah, I'm fascinated by this topic too, and it, the identity part is really why I've, I've come up with this term. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I want people to feel amazingly proud every single time. 
they reduce their consumption of animal products and to feel to view each plant-based meal as an opportunity to make a, a better choice. And I met people who felt alone. They knew of vegans and they knew of omnivores, but they didn't have a way of, of connecting on this larger community of people who were actively cutting out or cutting back on animal products. And that is an important point is that in my mind, vegans, vegetarians, flexitarians, they all are reducitarians. They're all mm -hmm. people who every day make a choice to consistently reduce the amount of animal products that they consume. And in viewing the definition like that, it allows us to work together and say, okay, there are people who eat well over 200 pounds of meat every single year, and then there's us. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's not us is the target audience. A vegan mm -hmm. should not worry about a vegetarian. A vegetarian should not worry about a flexitarian. We should focus on the people who are eating animal products all the time and encourage them to cut back on animal products. And so, yes, I meet people all the time who say, oh my goodness, I'm a reducitarian. I didn't uh -huh. know that this word existed. Um, and, you know, I think an important point here is that a flexitarian is someone who primarily eats plant-based foods, right? So they might, like me, right? They might occasionally eat animal products. But my father, who eats well over 200 pounds of meat every year, is nowhere near a flexitarian, but he might be able to adopt the identity of reducitarian and start mm -hmm. to make some changes with respect to his lifestyle. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to understand it because, you know, I can give many, I've said this before to have examples of, of friends, family members who get it intellectually, you know, they've uh, read my book and they've uh, heard the <laughs> podcast maybe once. Um, they've heard me talk about it when they, when they ask me questions about it. I'm not one to just go preach. Um, and, you know, they get it intellectually. They know, yes, of course, climate change is real and we need to, and factory farming is what's driving it and we need to cut down our consumption of, of animal products. But, 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 but there's always a but at the end of it. I don't think I could ever give up, um, you know, insert whatever animal food, whether it's bacon or fried chicken or uh, eggs or whatever it is. And I've often told them, you know, I'm not telling you to give up anything. Um, do the best that you can. If you, you know, if you think your love for bacon is getting in the way of you doing the right thing, then eat bacon when you want to eat it. It doesn't mean you now have to go buy every product in the grocery store that has is that has dairy or has uh, eggs in it, or that you need to be eating meat three times a day. Um, <clears throat> so don't let the and I know this is a bit of a cliched statement. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I've never had a, you know, I've never been able to tell them, yeah, maybe call yourself a reducitarian <laughs> and uh, we'll all get along. Um, and it, so I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm warming up to the idea okay. that it has a function, especially because they're, the facts are clear, right? You know this. One third of Americans are cutting down on meat consumption. I can spew all kinds of facts. Majority of the people who are eating plant based meats and buying them, in fact, meat eaters. Um, you know, so, and if you want, to really change the world. And if you want to uh, slow down the pace of climate change, you want to give uh, species a chance of surviving, if you want to improve the health of this country and the planet, people have to cut down on their consumption. That's a fact. And people are actually doing it. You're saying by giving them a space, an identity, um, or, or some friendly term they can also adopt, um, no one gets left out and everyone gets to do the right thing. And it should add to that, it's totally fine if people don't want to identify as reducitarian, right? Not everyone is going to. It can sound like a silly name yeah. to some people. But there will be some people, and there are, who it resonates with. And really just the main point is that I remember thinking that it's either vegan or nothing. And I meet people all the time, mm -hmm. as obvious as it may be to you or to me, that each meal is an opportunity to make a choice. A lot of people really do view it as an all-or-nothing premise, and that is really problematic. Why? Most people don't want to go vegan. Mm -hmm. That's a controversial thing to say, I guess, but it should be obvious. So if, if we have to provide people with an alternative, if we want them to um, begin to change their, their diet and, and perhaps their attitudes as well. I'm, and I actually, I, maybe that's just my opinion. I don't think it's a controversial thing to say. In fact, I, I don't even think it warrants much of a discussion because, the, as I said, the facts are clear. People are getting it and they're doing their best anyway. Uh, yeah, some of us may want everyone to be like us uh, or uh, have the identity that we kind of prescribe to. Um, and uh, we want everyone to be part of our little tribe. Mm -hmm. um, I get that. And, and there's this, this good in that. Community is important. Um, but, you know, I come from a perspective, which is why I say this is my personal opinion. I'm not saying everyone needs to think this way. Is that if you step back and you look at it from a you know planetary level, um, 
the solution is this. Everyone needs to cut down. And if some go all the way, that's great. Um, we we can all get along and we all can be happy about the fact that we're all trying versus you end up in this space where you are, you're either you're either a meat eater or you're or you're a hardcore vegan and there's no in between and most people don't like that uh so you're completely right about that so let's um, let's you know i guess you've I, I kind of agree um there is a space for a term like that um and in fact, maybe it helps describe what most people are actually doing without even realizing it. Uh, and whether they like to use the label or not, um, that is what's going to bring about the change. Um, so I think it's an important um, conversation to have nonetheless. Um, so the foundation, when you started the Reducetarian Foundation, what were your your goals beside, besides you know telling people that there is this in-between or gray area that you can belong to and still make a difference? I mean, my initial goals were really meager. You know, I was just, I was working at Columbia University Environmental Center. I wanted to do something fun. I had done (laughs) some PR consulting for some other companies, and I thought, well, I want to give something of my own a try. I gave a TEDx talk. I created an Indiegogo campaign. And then I reached out to a few reporters. And and this really harkens back to your other point, which is that reporters, it would be hard for them to write a story where it says, you know, people want to eat less meat. When you say something sexy, like there's this new term called reducitarian, it, mm-hmm. it just helps spread the idea, just, I guess, basic memetics or something like that. And so that was really my initial goal was just to simply spread um, that idea. And then I realized that there was a real – that was when I realized there was a real need for this because it just exploded in, in the press. And that led me to think, OK, well, maybe that we should start a nonprofit. We should create some programs that help promulgate that message and help build communities in which people are, in fact, spreading that message so that we can do that ultimate goal of – reducing societal consumption of animal products and, and changing attitudes. And so, um, you know, we started with publishing a book, The Reducitarian Solution. We've organized our, our first conference where we bring together all of the various leaders in the movement who um, are open to this sort of pragmatic, incremental um, measure. We're working on a documentary now. And so every time, you know, we, we come up with a new idea that we can execute on and the driving force behind it is educating people um, and trying to change their, their behaviors along the way. Great. I mean, I'm going to go a few steps back to sure. how you got started, um, because I think that's always kind of gets lost. No one spends enough time on it, but it is a very crucial point. Is that when you were at, at, at Columbia and you were thinking, you know, I've I need to do something like this. This is my mission. I I really believe you need to reduce societal consumption of meat. How did? What was the first step you took to to? You know, obviously, you didn't have a background in, in working. Have you worked in nonprofits? Do you have you started anything before when you were a kid? Like, what made you want to take that leap from? Here's an idea. This is what I believe in. Um, I'm going to go do it on my own versus go get a job somewhere. Yeah, I think I've always had a slightly entrepreneurial attitude. Um, when I was when I was younger, I actually created this sort of these series of Harry Potter replicas um, that I that I sold on eBay when I was about I don't know 14 or so. I made like all these different artifacts from the Harry Potter movie. And I remember trying to convince my father to buy a printer and support me. And we, I was actually somewhat <laughs> somewhat successful. Um, someone once told me, think about what you did as a kid, what you love doing, and that's the career that you should follow. And only years later did I realize that that's somewhat true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had just developed the attitude that I had to give something a go. I really wanted to just um, kind of go for it on a low, a low stakes. Unlike a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm very risk adverse in my personality, which is where there's sometimes a lot of tension. But I thought, well, I can just, you know, we came, my friend and I came up with the term, uh, my friend Tyler, and, you know, we, we always have these sort of philosophical conversations. And we're just like, let's build a website. You know, we built a, built a Squarespace website, came up with some very basic branding. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, well, I should probably, you know, at least seem like an authority. So let me get some, try and try and find some kind of, I don't know, uh, you know, talk. And I managed to land a, a TEDx talk uh-huh. and I put the content together very quickly. And I said, you know, this is the moment I just have to do, sort of go for it. Um, and then, and then, yeah, I was like, well, this, this is all this happening. Let me try and raise some money. I'll figure out what I'm going to do with the money later, but I have to go for it. And along the way, it just turned into this really incredible thing. But it was terrifying. I mean, it was really scary to put yourself out there. I mean, look at look at my you know my TEDx comments. I mean, I've never people have said the meanest things. You, there's a sense of vulnerability when you sort of put yourself out there for the mm-hmm. first time. Um, and I along the way got a ton of flack from people in the animal rights movement and, and the vegan community. And um, along the way, I realized that that's actually a pretty small minority relative to the people who have this kind of pragmatic approach. 
but um, definitely meeting with people who've done this before along the way, seeking their advice. All these things sound like platitudes, but they're not. It's mm-hmm. a sort of um, uh, emotional journey that you take along the way to kind of build something that you care about. And for me, this was an idea that needed to be spread. And I was right about that. And I think mm-hmm. that's why we've been relatively successful so far in continuing to build our platform um, and having conversations with people. You know, I love that. I you know, I didn't know some of those details. I think it's important. And I think that's why it's important for people to listen to that is because so many people have ideas and so many people have um, something they truly believe in. But they, you know, they'll sit and plan and they'll discuss it with their friends and their family. Um, but either they're just too afraid to take that first step or, or they feel that they're not qualified enough and they need to do more research and they need to read a few more books and watch a few more uh, TED Talks or documentaries before they can take that leap. Um, and it starts somewhere and even like, you know, as you said, put up a website, um, come up with a talk, do something. Uh, and usually everything starts that small and it, and you have no idea where it's going to lead to, but you're just kind of following what it is that you feel like you're meant to do. So I appreciate that. I think anyone who attempts to do something, um, whether it f- succeeds or fails, um, needs to be applauded because uh, you, you never hear the stories of the ones who don't have courage to even take that first step. So firstly, for Dick, taking that step, is a, it's a it's a huge thing. Uh, and then, of course, you've you've turned that into something real now. So, um, so where things kind of evolved since you started off? You said 2014, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed like you didn't. You had very basic idea. You wanted to spread this message, and you wanted to get more people talking about it. Uh, one question before I kind of dive into the the story so far with the Reducitarian Foundation is that, uh, and I asked this uh, of um, uh, Mark Bittman when I talked to him. Uh, my first question to him was, um, in fact, it wasn't a question. In fact, it was more of a statement. I said, um, I think I would be more effective in the work that I was doing if I actually told people I ate meat. Mm. Um, and um, he laughed. And, and, and I was like, no, I'm serious because I feel a lot of people, because if I say I don't and I've been plant-based or whatever for, for eight years, um, automatically they assume I'm coming from a pr- place of bias uh, and I've got some agenda. Uh, versus Mark Bittman, on the other hand, because you know, of course, he's done. Pro- he's made more people eat vegetables than, uh, than he's probably been the biggest proponent of eating vegetables without actually being a vegetarian himself. Um, because I think he doesn't seem so threatening to those that do eat meat. So my question for you though is, do you? <laughs> uh, I is this? And he asked me. He's like, he in fact responded saying, "No, it's not an act. I actually do eat meat." And he got he kind of got serious about it. My question to you is this: Are you are you pretending to be a meat eater? Do you actually are you actually a reducitarian, or do you feel like reducitarian is broad enough that it just allows you the freedom to be even ninety nine percent plant based? Not that it matters, but I think it's important because because of the point I raised is that you're more, you're more receptive to people who are not like you when you make them realize that yeah, hey, listen, I'm not a, a vegan with an, with an agenda. I love that question, and I get that question a lot. Um, what's interesting is it's changed for me over the years. When mm-hmm. I first started, my cards were really on the table in that I did eat meat on occasion. If I were in, in particular social situations where it was just easier to say yes. I remember going to a wedding, for example, and there's just food everywhere, and I just I didn't want to deal with it um, at, at, at Thanksgiving or Passover or holidays. I think what happens is you start to understand the issues more and more. You Your taste buds almost stop being repulsed by vegetables and fruits because that's what it feels like at first when you're used to eating foods that are high in salt and sugar and fat and so forth. And you start to not crave it anymore. And so I actually am in a a, a position in life now where I really don't um, eat meat ever. Uh, I occasionally will not like ask about, I don't know, like egg in a bun or something like that. but uh, I do think that, uh, for example, I meet, meet you know vegans who say, "Ugh, like meat is disgusting," and I'm like, "Well, people seem to like it a lot." I don't think meat is disgusting. I don't. I, think I actually it is like either. the taste of meat. I don't. I haven't eaten meat in eight years, and, and I keep telling people I don't. I've never had a problem with the taste of meat. Right. And which is why I'm so happy that Beyond uh, Meat and Impossible Foods and perhaps Clean Meat is going to be there, because my problem is with, with with how it's produced and what it is. And what the cost of producing that and the cost on the planet, on people's health, and of course, on, on the billions of animals that are slaughtered. So 
I guess, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but uh, I guess my point was that, yeah, you're saying you're you're not repulsed by it necessarily. No, I mean, I'm just, I just try and be an everyday person. You know, I mm-hmm. sleep at hotels where there's probably feathers in the bedding. I play tennis with some friends that ha- I think there's like wool in the, in the, the derived wool in the tennis balls. I mean, the idea that you can be 100% vegan is ridiculous. So you might as well just own it and well, you see, that. You see, that's why I don't like the labels, right? Is because when you have the labels, it becomes about like, is the ground I'm walking on vegan? And that's right. just a ridiculous discussion to have, in my opinion, because we don't live in a world where we can control everything. And it becomes a purity contest. Who's who's yeah. the best? And it, it defeats the, the, the entire premise, um, which is that we should just do the best we can. Uh, yeah. So and, I, I, and it's becoming easier. And you should promote things that are making it easier for people to... So that, I mean, as long as you're promoting... And I think as long as people, and I think it's important for people to understand, and I hope you agree with this, is that as long as you're promoting people move in the in the right direction, um, how far they move and how soon they move is kind of up to them, right? So if you tell them the end goal, you've got to eat. I don't even mean an end goal. I mean, the goal is eat less meat and animal products, eat more things that are derived from plant-based sources. Now, what percentage, how much, when, how, leave, let people are smart enough. And of course, give them the reasons why. And there's no other way. We're not going to be able to force people into changing mm-hmm. their attitudes and behavior. Any one time someone yells at me or scolds me or makes me feel like crap for having a certain view, it just doesn't work. And yeah. so we have to, um, it might not be ideal, but I just don't know any other way besides encouraging people to move in a, a direction because most people, um, that's how people transition. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So so with the Reduce Italian Foundation, now that you have a real nonprofit, you put together this this really interesting event last year in New York City that I was lucky to be part of as well. Um, what was the kind of the thinking then and, and how has thinking evolved in terms of how do you use this organization that you have now um, to do something besides, you know, you're talking about it, obviously, and you're mm-hmm. doing something right now. Uh, but beyond that, what what is the goal of the organization? You know, I think when I started Reducitarian Foundation, I was really focused on the consumer, the individual purpose, a person um, who was eating animal products all the time, and I wanted them to cut back. And to me, that was such an, an obvious, sensible thing to do that I was surprised and taken aback by the fact that a lot of people didn't share that view necessarily. And so what I realized is that there was actually a space to kind of create a movement and a platform for all of the leaders in the movement in the broadest of sense, anyone who's against factory farming and supportive of a world in which people at least, at least reduce societal uh, consumption of animal products could come together and acknowledge that even though they have some philosophical differences, that the movement will be stronger and more effective as a whole if we simply work together. And so what I realized is, well, why don't I, you know, I have a master's in conservation biology. I'm meeting all these animal advocates and human health experts and food technologists and entrepreneurs and so forth. And why don't we put them all together and have a conversation where we can form collaborations and be strategic about kind of moving the ball along. And so that's really where my mind is at a lot. Um, I think that there are lots of opportunities for organizations and people in power who are on the fringe of starting to work in this movement and can do so um, if we simply invite them and to, to, to broaden our kind of perspective. So I think of, you know, environmental organizations that are focused on climate change and biodiversity loss, but they're not necessarily focusing on meat reduction. Or I think about health organizations that are focusing on diabetes and, and heart disease. And I think about some of the in my mind, the sort of pragmatic animal advocacy groups that could help play a role in in broadening the movement and finding these partnerships so we don't go at it alone. I mean, infighting just feels like a, a nightmare, a strategic <laughs> disaster, especially when we have so much in common relative to so many other people. And so that's really where the heart um, of where I'm at and in terms of the Reducitarian Summit is what we're trying to do is bring these people together. So the so the it's kind of spark conversations, uh, get people to connect with each other, um, and you know really just have an interesting discussion um, about the the bigger goals over here with people perhaps you would otherwise not run into um, because you don't necessarily. I, I I thought so. I'm just gonna give an example. What I thought was interesting is was was a good mix 
of people who come at it from a, from an advocacy perspective, but also a lot of um, entrepreneurs. Um, and it was a interesting, you know, it was, you don't normally have that kind of discussion in one place. Now that that's already happened and you have a second one coming up, is that where your core focus has been? Do you have other campaigns you're working on? You, you can take this idea and use it in so many different ways, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, you could just go focus on um, meat reduction in um, in schools and, and other places. And, yeah, there are other organizations doing similar things. You could work with local governments and try to convince them to um, to put... Um, you know, food and and meat reduction is kind of the top agenda item when they're thinking about sustainability. Uh, what is like? How have you been able to sift through these options, and what have you narrowed down into in terms of actionable projects or campaigns or partnerships that you're going to do or have been doing? Yeah, there's a lot in there. I mean, I I think we all have a, a role to play, and it's about we don't all have to do the same thing, right? And it's all about figuring out what what are your passions and what are your skills and how can you contribute to the movement. And I think for us, we have a a really unique sort of message and platform to help disseminate the idea to everyday people that they should consider cutting back on animal products. And I absolutely love doing PR. It's just what I love to do. And I love finding ways to spread that message. Um, I want to go back, though, to the the summit. Our first summit, I just wanted to get people to embrace the idea that they should work together. Um, And it seemed like that was successful. I think people, this was the first time where people were in a room with all different sort of perspectives but could find common ground. And now I feel like that common ground is built. I feel a change in the air that there is a receptiveness to working together and putting aside some of these relatively small differences in terms of philosophies and what do we want, a vegan world or whatnot. And now for our next summit, I'm thinking about what we can actually do, right? So we have all these people who want to work together. Our next summit is in LA, uh, September 28th to the 30th. And our theme is action. So now I want people to find ways to form coalitions, to find ways to form partnerships. If you're, you know, we have good food companies and entrepreneurs come, we invite investors. I love the idea of an environmentalist, an animal advocate and a human health expert doing a campaign together rather than focusing um, on one particular motivation. Um, We're working on a documentary now, like I said, because I think that you know, the, there's so many great documentaries out there, but a lot of them have a, a pretty hardcore vegan agenda, at least in my mind. And so I've been very excited about the idea of having a documentary that has a, a pretty moderate message and is sort of exploring the issues in a non-prescriptive way, but will leave people with the idea that they should probably care about the suffering of animals and the planet, and they can make a difference by thinking about their diet and, per, and perhaps changing. But I, I do think for me, the most important role we can play is around movement building and and simply spreading this message as much as possible. I look, you know, I thought about doing, and we had a conversation about this, I think, in mm-hmm. the past, where I thought about doing, you know, should I do corporate campaigns? Um, should I uh, do undercover investigations into factory mm-hmm. farms? Should I start a business and start another plant-based company? And um, I think that we have to be honest with who we are and, and ourselves and, and just follow the particular thing that excites us most, assuming we do the research. And that is the last point is that I'm also very excited about being a player in thinking about what is the most effective message in actually changing people's attitudes and and behaviors. Because I have a lot of humility about this. I could be wrong about everything, right? I don't know for certain. Um, I have a lot of anecdotal and intuitive experience, but there's not a ton of data to actually analyze some of these questions that we're asking. And so we do have a, a lab in which we conduct studies comparing different kinds of messaging. And we have a, a big a big study that we're wrapping up comparing vegetarian messaging, so go vegetarian, versus encouraging people to eat less meat and to see over time um, does one message perform better than another in terms of people's attitudes and dietary change. And so I don't have the results of that study yet, but these are the kinds of questions that I think we um, should continue to ask and share those messages to the to the broader community. And of course, it has relevance for branding of plant-based companies. I mean, you know, very rarely do you see a plant-based company now that uses the word vegan Mm -hmm. because they're nervous that it's going to turn a lot of people off. And I think that there are lots of other questions we can be asking about what are the kinds of messages that are going to create the actions that we want to see. Yeah. And so much has changed since you probably started off, right? I mean, even 2014, which doesn't seem like that long ago, but there was no... um, there wasn't a, the Good Food Institute in, in 2014. Um, most of these 
uh, investment firms didn't exist that were are now focusing primarily on plant-based or clean meat companies. So, and, and you know, I, the reason I brought up Good Food Institute is because they're an example of uh, the changing times of, uh, uh, you know, the animal rights advocacy community um, kind of evolving their thinking on what was the most effective way to bring about change. And uh, that kind of morphed into GFI and New Crop Capital. Um, so in some ways, you know, some of those things that you and I and many others have wished for are starting to happen, where these, you know, the, the, the discussions that were happening four or five years ago don't even happen anymore. And if they do, they happen in, mm-hmm. in small, small kind of factions um, about, you know, vegan world and all of that stuff. I think it's kind of, we're past that at this point. The world is moving forward. People are choosing plant-based foods. They are cutting down on meat consumption. Um, but not one thing is going to solve all of it, right? Just having three companies like Beyond Meat are not going to change the world. Um, you need the consumer focus. You need to still inform people. You, you need to still wa- wage that information war on the internet to convince people that... Mm-hmm. Um, there are scientific facts that prove that for environmental reasons, for uh, health reasons, um, and if if you do want to care about animals for very clear animal re- rights or welfare reasons, we need to get rid of factory farming or shift away from it. And the easiest way to make that happen, in a, and the most sustainable way to make that happen, is to go is to eat more plant based foods. So you need to do that consumer. You have to fight that consumer fight. Uh, but you also have to solve the supply side problem, which is the the food companies uh, and that whole kind of uh, ecosystem network of uh, investors and researchers and all the supporting uh, services and groups that are going to help companies that are producing plant-based alternatives to every imaginable animal food grow. Um, so you need that. And that's not going to, again, be, as I said, one company or two companies. It takes... It takes um, an entire village or world, actually, to yeah. make that happen. So, I mean, you, my question, I guess, is that things have changed a lot since you probably had your initial assumptions about, I need to get people to understand that we need to cut down consumption. We now live in a world where that's sort of happening. And, of course, we still, I'm not saying that's that's a given that everyone's going to now, the fact is we're still consuming uh, way too much meat. But how's your thinking evolved? And is that now... Uh, matured to the point where you think, well, maybe Reducitarian Foundation can play a better role when it comes to being this platform that connects um, uh, that connects entrepreneurs and investors mm-hmm. and uh, the advocacy groups, and we can then spearhead the, co- the those campaigns. Is it research? Is it the consumer thing? Are those? Or is it all of it? Like you just kind of laid out. I've definitely involved in my thinking on this because you know. I I always knew that probably telling or thinking that everyone would go vegan overnight was not going to be the way forward. And so we had to have a pragmatic message, so cut back on animal products. But I think what I've realized over the years, or I know I have, is that really telling anyone something without giving them a convenient, tasty, mm-hmm. um, affordable option uh, is is not going to work. And so I'm super excited about the innovations we're seeing in the plant-based and also the cellular agriculture space and I do think that that's really an increasing role that I want to take on with our, our nonprofit. And so uh, I've continued to, to publish lots of op-eds, for example, supporting plant-based meats and, and, and cultured meat. Um, we do continue to have a major focus on our summit around both those in, from the investor side and the entrepreneur side. Our documentary is going to explore those issues because, you know, I think there is a little bit of resistance from some of the people in our community who are cutting back on animal products. They have stigmas about plant-based products or they have concerns about cultured meat. And I do think that we can play a role in informing consumer perceptions. So as those products continue to be developed, that consumers actually want to eat them. You know, on the one hand, I find that I, I feel a little spoiled, right? Because I started this a few years ago and I meet people who've been trying to do this for 40 years and they say, you can't even begin to appreciate how much change that we're seeing in the space. And I am so excited about that. And I do think it's a lot easier now than ever before um, to cut back on animal products. But I also suppose I, I I wrestle with that level of optimism with the reality, which is that people continue to eat insane amounts of animal products. And so I think it's just going to take a lot more time to see the the actual results and, and the change that we 
want to see. But we're still in a bubble, right? It's mm-hmm. not like most people are having Impossible Burgers or Beyond Burgers. Most people are eating burger meat, meat burgers, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but I think that if we're going to have any shot at, at making the change, it's going to come down to really giving people what they want already, mm-hmm. just giving to them in a way in which the products are actually produced in a, in a, a better better way. Yeah. yeah, and have you? Have you, I know you mentioned research a little bit, but um, and you have a survey that you've done, um, which I think is you know one of those things that people I know speaking with, um, whether it's advocacy groups or or and entrepreneurs, both are looking for, uh, and it and it's something that is definitely needed. Um, we need a lot more kind of market survey, like, you know, consumer surveys and a sense of like what works, what doesn't work, what are the shifting consumer opinions on things so that everyone who's trying to message to them or create products for them are able to kind of tweak their little dials to figure out how best to meet people where they, they will most likely be able to make a change. Have you also sort of thought about... Um, uh, the policy side of thing, because, you know, one is consumers, the other is bring about innovation and all that. But if you don't have a, a the right policy framework, um, it can become a hindrance to the growth of uh, and the adoption of these, these products and uh, consumer kind of, you know, interest in these products as well. Is that something you're involved in, interested in? Is, is are you, you think that's in the future for you? That's a good question. It's definitely something I'm interested in. I'm particularly concerned around standards of identity and, mm-hmm. and what we can call particular products, whether that be, for example, milk or whether we can call uh, uh, cultured meat, meat, if at all. Um, and I do think this is an extremely important topic. And I know that there are several groups like the Good Food Institute that are focused on that work. Uh, and I do think it's possible that in the future we could uh, assist with that. Um, we aren't at the moment, and I'm still happy with the sort of current um, take that we're approaching. But that is definitely, I think, going to be a major roadblock uh, in terms of actually, you know, getting these products in the market and making sure they're labeled in such a way in which they're acceptable to consumers. Yeah. And so if you kind of had to look ahead uh, in, in maybe a year or so, where would you ideally like to, you know, what would your priorities be if you had to list like your top three priorities as an organization uh, where would you think you're, you're going to fit in the most? And I think the reason I ask that is because for those listening in, trying to figure out, wait, how can I get involved with the Reduce Deterrent Tarn Foundation? Uh, what is it that they're offering that uh, that can be of, of, of use for them? Or, or how they, how can they kind of um, help in some way? Um, what would those kind of key areas be, the key priorities? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I really want um, every person on the planet to know that this concept exists and whether or not they identify as reducitarian or not is one thing. And so every time I see our article, you know, reducitariani or reducitariano or translated into all sorts of different languages, I get very excited. I know we wanted to continue to do movement building and, and in many ways that means moving our conference from place to place. So we did our last one in New York. We're moving the next one to L.A., our 2019 one is likely going to be Washington, D.C., but I think we could move, continue to move um, around um, the United States and also internationally because the United States, for example, relative to China, in which meat consumption is massively on the rise, um, there's certainly an opportunity to, to do more work internationally because we have such a, a stronghold um, here in the United States. And then definitely on the, the good food technology side, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that cultured meat will be available in, in the coming years. And I really do hope we're in a place where people are excited about it um, and they're interested in trying it and they understand all the, 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 the complexities of it. And so that's something I'm continually thinking a lot about is how to use our sort of marketing and, and public relations arm to make sure that everyone knows that this is happening and it's mm-hmm. something that they um, should be excited about. Uh, so yeah, those are the kind of immediate um, in the next few years things that are on my mind. And in terms of like um, just from an organizational standpoint, where are you now at? Um, how's that kind of journey been for you? Started off with this basic idea when you were in in Columbia. I'm assuming in grad school at that point. Uh, where are you now? Um, um, you do you have uh, full full time staff? Um, what are your kind of growth plans in that standpoint? Because that's part of the fun too, right? You're building something. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. You know, back in the day, I had to do everything myself, right? And the more donations we we receive from our generous supporters, 
um, we're able to come up with an idea, then find the people to execute on that. So, you know, the summit, I've hired a director of events, the documentary, I've hired a, a director and a cinematographer to go out and collect the footage for our books. I have editorial assistance mm-hmm. for people that I hire. Um, I do think we're, we're as we continue to grow, we're going to have to hire more people to um, actually execute on these campaigns. And that's really what I love to do, right? I mean, I love the idea of our conference. I love the idea of the documentary books. But what's next? And what's this absurd, creative, new thing that I can do that maybe other people wouldn't necessarily do? And I think that's really at the heart of my sort of spirit is I don't want to do things that other people are doing. And maybe mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the most... Uh, I don't know, intellectualized response, but there's this sort of intuition that I have. You know, I'm an individual person. I want to do something that people haven't tried before. I want to take a, a risk. And when I get through a particular project, and so our, our summit is all set and our books are going to continue to come out, what I think a lot about is what's next. And for me right now, the documentary is one thing that I'm very excited about, but I'm always open to kind of producing something completely new and mm. trying something new out. And I don't always have the answers, but I love the idea of having conversations with people and um, trying to uh, come up with something that's pretty original that I think will actually have a, a significant impact on the planet for the good. Yeah, and and the documentary, when is uh, when is that planned for us? How long have you been working on that? We've only been working on a few months, so don't hold me to it on the, on the exact dates. Um, <laughs> my hope is that by the end of 2019, the documentary will will be complete. And I've always said that the only way the documentary is considered a success is millions of people see it. So hopefully we'll be able to land it on Netflix or HBO or get some mm-hmm. major distributor. Uh, but I am very excited about the possibility that there'll be a documentary that you can recommend to someone who probably has no interest or going vegan or vegetarian mm-hmm. um, and doesn't want to feel judged, um, but can kind of learn about the issues in an engaging and, and, I don't know, thoughtful, relaxed way. Yeah, that's exciting. And in in terms of the summit, which is um, coming up in September uh, in L.A., who are you trying to draw in from um, an attendee standpoint? Um, I'm assuming from a from a panelist or speaker standpoint, you will have the same mix, probably in a, a more advanced version of the same mix you had last year. I haven't looked up the, the mm-hmm. latest list of speakers, but... Um, who are you planning to draw in? Like, why would someone want to go and attend this? And what do you hope that they get out of it? Well, I think there's a there's a few different populations. I mean, one is we reach out to students in the area. So students who might not be interested, let's say, in, in an animal rights conference or some particular mission. We want to bring them into the fold so that they can be the next generation of, of social or business entrepreneurs and and get involved in the space. Because I know there's so much interest in hiring, hiring talent um, in this area. We also really do focus on folks who are not vegan, who are not necessarily um, working in meat reduction right now, but could be. And so I spend a lot of time trying to meet with influential people in, in the health space and the environmental space and trying to encourage them to, hey, just check this out. Be a part of this initiative. If you have an exciting idea that you want to try out in your organization, I can connect you with a funder mm-hmm. who might be open to experimenting with that and funding that. You can do this within the, the mission um, of your organization. Uh, I love um, finding people who could be a part of our movement if they had the opportunity to meet people because it meet people who are nice and open-minded. I don't know if I just haven't let go of it, but I still have this feeling that most people associate veganism with, with I don't know, not being kind to others and, and being judgmental. And there's this perception that when I, I just, you know, I was in Staten Island, I talked to my friends and they have, they always have, you know, something not nice to say uh, about that space. And they don't understand that there's a middle ground where people are open to, to being, I don't know, nice and pragmatic. And it's not to say that vegans aren't nice. It's just that there's this perception. And so um, for me, I think this is the space where people can really come and network in a curious, open-minded way. You know, 60% of our attendance last year was not vegan. And that's I hope that number continues in a sense to rise because I want people who are not vegan or not vegetarian mm-hmm. to actually come and start to engage with these issues both personally and within the context of the work that they're doing. Yeah, I mean, one flip side to what you've been saying I do want to bring up is that you know you mentioned the the negative view that some people have about probably the animal rights space more than anything else, which is where the initial you know vegan movements as such came out of. Um, I think that's also changing and evolving. Um, so I, I do want to, I don't, I think it'll be wrong for us to go through this entire conversation and not acknowledge that um, 
that was probably true a few years ago and it's probably true for some people who got into this space a few years ago um via the animal rights route um or at least kind of working in that space and became and, and decided that that being vegan is the way to to actually bring about change which it is sure um but there's a new generation of of younger people that are you know not afraid that they don't have that baggage of thinking that you know vegans are um all animal right nuts who are angry and hate other people which again is a stereotype i don't think that's totally true totally not true yep um and they don't are not afraid of the vegan word and vegan doesn't mean this you know crazy either animal rights or hippie or some other uh term to it so we're kind of you know going back to the identity thing right mm-hmm. uh which is the label has also evolved over the years and it's changed with each new generation that's embraced it so you talk to like uh, kids in school they don't care they use the word vegan and they may not be vegan but they understand what it is they're like yeah we eat vegan there's vegan restaurants nearby and this may be true my understanding of what's happening in New York City so you know i i don't know what's happening around the country i can only speak for my my experience i see younger people being more okay about the idea and they're kind of redefining the term and making it something beyond just angry people and in fact you'll see this the, the a lot of the new push whether it is uh, on instagram the influ- instagram influencers it is very positive it is all about abundance it is about health it is about uh compassion and kindness and uh and self uh, improvement and and eating vegan is just one part of it it's about you know making yourself you know living a much more well-rounded self-actualized life that you're meant to live and and kind of e- eating vegan is just one step in that way because obviously who the hell wants to be part of the factory <laughs> farming system so i think you know younger kids are just smarter versus so i just want to throw that out there that maybe some of that is true but that's also changing you know even the word vegan is being reinvented and that in some ways you know if you talk to miyoko for example miyoko shinar the 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 amazing queen of vegan cheese phenomenally vegan yeah she's slogan. she's owning it right so she says you know we, if we give that up right if you say that you know vegan's a bad word and don't use it because people are scared of it and they have all these negative ideas of vegans then you lose it forever instead she's saying no you can't you can embrace the word you can own it and you can show that there's there's absolutely this is a whether you choose to adopt the label as a lifestyle or you just say i eat vegan food the word still carries a lot of sense and it depends on what your own experiences have been with it i i think this is and a great <laughs> yeah no i think this is a good source of debate i mean there's a yeah. lot of different opinions on this and i'm not saying we have to throw away the word vegan or vegetarian yeah. this is why i think different camps will resonate with different people but this is an empirical question that we don't know the answer to there are a lot of food companies who run for the hills they don't want vegan on their products yeah. and so it's an interesting uh it's a really interesting time but definitely um i think this is the gen to the back to that point is we all have to play a role we need diversity of messages we need diversity of tactics we need to use um all the possible resources because we know that different messages are going to resonate with different people i think some people mistakenly um think that i'm trying to say we should use you know only reduce vegetarian or only less meat but the truth is that we have to use all of the different messages that we possibly can and so i'm glad you said that that's yeah. very important because at the end of the day you know i um and i've said this before too is that i listen to a lot of um podcasts uh that are um talking about the paleo diet and the ketogenic diet and i actually have learned a lot from them uh maybe not about what food to eat but uh <laughs> but you know they they tend to talk about a lot more than just uh eating bacon all day long so we have our own misconception you know any group that you don't necessarily belong to as such you assume the worst of them because you only know them for their the bullet point stereotype view of what that group is so all people are into paleo are just eating bacon all day <laughs> and are just working out all the time and right. like hate vegans uh and you know the opposite is true of the other group i just think that's all you know bullshit at the end of the day because and nothing is so simple i like gray i don't black and white stupid because there is no black we live in a very a world full of gray and you've yeah. got to embrace the uncertainty you've got to embrace the ambiguity ambiguity in the world because uh only then can you be you can have a conversation with someone else who maybe isn't exactly like you and and the only way you ever learn is when you actually listen to someone who isn't exactly like you because you're listening to people who are spitting back things that you think all day long you're really not evolving at all 
Yeah, I I totally think you're right. I couldn't have said it better myself. And if and I try to, you know, I, that's why I like going back to Staten Island. I go to the Staten Island Mall. <laughs> I see there aren't vegan food everywhere. It's hard to find a vegan meal in the Staten Island Mall. We have to get out of our bubbles. Um, there's a place for vegan cruises and vegan drinks and vegan resorts and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we have to do our best to kind of go to the paleo conference and engage with people and, and as uncomfortable as that might be. But you probably said it a lot better than me, so I'll pause there. <laughs> no, and it's like, you know, community. And I, I think that's important. Like, community is important. And, of course, you need to find other people you get along with. Like, you don't want to be arguing and, you know, being patient and just listening all the time either. <laughs> Sometimes you just want to be high-fiving and saying we're cool. Yeah. That's fine. Right? You need your friends to hang out with who agree with 99% of the things you say, maybe. But when you take yourself out of that situation, we're thinking about, wait, wait, we're not talking about what is my lifestyle choice and what I choose to have, you know, people I choose to hang out with. We're talking about what needs to happen to change the world. Yeah. And, and that's what you're talking about. What do we need to do to bring about change so that we can end the mindless slaughter of billions of animals in horrific factory farms where people, no matter if they eat meat, would agree that it is barbaric and needs to stop. And most people do, right? Which is great. In the paleo people do, too. Yeah, exactly. So, um, common ground. Um, and, you know, maybe now it's the keto people, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> but that's what we need to do. We have to convince people that that needs to stop, that we are, our planet isn't, no, forget our planet, we are facing extinction and maybe not this generation but two three generations you know our kids and our grandkids are the ones who are going to actually face the consequences of our inaction and our stupid infighting and our debates about you know which camp do we belong to and and what's cool and what's not and who's right and who's wrong doesn't matter right what matters is how are we going to move the needle in the direction to bring about global change on uh, on our food system and how you go about it, and if you convince people to go reduce a turn and that's going to make it happen, of course that's the right approach, right? If more people are going to cut down on meat consumption because they listen to you, that's way more important from a, you know, animal rights, health, environmental standpoint than uh, a bunch of, you know, five people being convinced that you, you can all, you know, join your little club. Um, so, you know, I'm just echoing what you, you think, but I think it's important for us to bring that up because I see, I, I see all sides of it and no one's right or wrong. We just all kind of need to just tolerate each other and let each other do what it is that we are meant to do in this, in this movement or this, um, this bigger mission, because, you know, as I said, one of not one person is going to solve this whole, you need, you need, you need a Brian Cateman. We need, you need each other. We're, yeah, we're we need everyone. Movement. Yep. Um, anyway, I've been ranting too much about that, but I think, um, what's, I'd like to kind of close out with, uh, getting some of your thoughts on, um, you know, I know we, we spoke about the, the summit and what's coming in the next couple of years. And, uh, you know, I appreciate what you've done here, which is you've had the guts to go out there and, and try something and believe in it and stick to it. And, and you're building something and you have to appreciate people who are out there building something at the end of the day, as I said before, most people don't have the courage to even do that. And, and what you're building is trying to bring about positive change, which is what's important. But if you look ahead, if, you're, if you get it right, if you convince you know, millions of people to go reduce vegetarian or at least cut down meat consumption and call themselves whatever they want to call themselves, uh, and you are successful, um, and we are all successful in making this happen, uh, what kind of world do you kind of envision 30 years down the line? You know, I ask this question of everyone when I close out my podcast. In the year 2050, what is Brian Cateman's... Uh, ideal world? Well, I just think about a world in which there's a lot of happiness and there's not much suffering. And I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of fronts to tackle, right? So it's not just animal rights. It's not just climate change and biodiversity loss. It's global poverty. It's concerns about, I don't know, artificial intelligence. It's There's so many challenges that we're facing. And so I, I look forward to the day where every um, animal and environment and, and person is treated with respect uh, and love that they deserve, but there'll always be something else for me as Brian Cateman to go out and focus on. So for now, I think this is one of the most neglected uh, and high priority issues that a person could focus on. But I do hope that we get to a place where um, we all think of the world as a world in which everyone, um, all beings are filled with the the happiness and, and joy that they deserve. And I, I think that at, at the end of the day is 
no matter where you're at, you know, that's what we all want. And so for the most part, we should do our best to rally behind that idea. Well said. Well, thank you, Brian Kateman. This has been um, a pleasure to hang out with you again and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon at the Reduce the Terran Summit. Likewise, my friend. Thanks again. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.